Thanks, guys. Man, what a, what a privilege it is to, to worship with these guys. I just, I couldn't help but noticing, did you notice how we started worshiping God for creation and then uh, the, the fall was there and God's redemption and then the, the peace finishing with it is well with my soul? I just, uh, if, if you didn't notice that, I mean, it's, there's really an intentionality to the, the order of the worship that they put together. Uh, so, my name is Keith Hubbard. I'm a professor over at SFA. I've been here about 10 years. Uh, we're going to be in Romans 5 today. So, you might turn to Romans 5. We're going through verses 1 through 11. So, I've been here about 10 years. Uh, big life changes since I've been here. I got married, actually, I think it was in year 7. And four months ago, I became a dad. So, lots of big adventures. Uh, this is, this is Amelia Joy. Um, life is great, maybe not quite as much sleep as I used to get, but that's, that's pretty much my life in a nutshell right now. Uh, so, uh, we're going to be in chapter 5, hopefully I've stalled long enough, and I just want to, I mean, if you were reading a letter, right, uh, Romans is a letter from Paul to the people in Rome, and if you started on page 5 of the letter, well, you kind of would want to remember what was in the first four pages, right? So let's just sort of go back. My really, really quick and dirty take on the first four chapters of Romans is Paul's writing to people in Rome. He's saying, you know, why is it that we long for this right relationship with God and we don't have it? That's, that's basically the, the whole thing. And he, and he sort of goes back. The, the big religious word is right relationship. The big religious word for right relationship is righteousness, right? So when you hear righteousness, you should think a right relationship with God. So he starts out and he says, uh, you know, you've been given all of these good things from God, right? You've been given life. You've been given relationship with God. You've been given this beautiful, pristine creation. Uh, and what happened? Well, we screwed it up right? We, we mistreated the perfect life that he gave us. Uh, we have been sinful either outwardly or in our thoughts, which is no different to God, right? And so judgment is deserved. And I think for me, you know, that's, that's the big hiccup as an American, right? Uh, you know, ah, you know, I mean, come on, everybody makes mistakes, right? But I just, I was trying to come up with sort of a picture for that. And so I think my daughter, if we could go back to my daughter, Amelia, this is the picture that I think is closest to, uh, to what God is saying here. I have given you a perfect gift. Imagine if I entrusted my daughter to you, my dear, dear daughter, and you, you hurt her. You maimed my daughter. That's wrong. You deserve that gift taken back, and you deserve punishment. You deserve to be punished, and I deserve to be punished for misusing a good, good gift. You know it. You know it when you look at a child. You know child abusers deserve punishment. But we've all fallen short. We have all, think about those thoughts. 
those worst thoughts that you've ever had that are every bit as evident to God as anything you've done outwardly. We stand before a holy God, rightly accused and deserving judgment. That's the start of Romans, right? And so then God goes into uh, the picture there of, so, so here, is, here is this good gift, we've misused it, God brings Israel, right? And he says, here, I'm going to set aside this people. I want them to be an example of how to restore the gift, how to relate rightly to God, righteousness, how to be righteous. And what does Israel do? Well, Israel is screwed up just as bad as everybody else, right? This is, this is miserable. Then chapter 3, Paul writes about a new way to righteousness. And it's a pretty miraculous way. You and I have screwed up bad. We have misused the good gifts God has given us. We deserve the gift to be revoked, and we deserve judgment. And God says, I will send my son to take the punishment, right? And actually bring you back into relationship. It would be a big thing to be forgiven alone. But we get forgiven and we get invited back into righteousness, back into right relationship with God. So then he goes back, Paul does, and he says, look, even Abraham, even sort of the father of Israel, he believed God. That's all it took. All it took was believing that you need Jesus' forgiveness and that Jesus' forgiveness is enough. And it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So, really, this is the uplifting time. We get to chapter 5, and chapter 5 is where Paul says, hey, what does this look like? Okay, we've had the heavy stuff, time for a break. What is this wonderful life that you haven't worked for, that you don't have to work with, of no longer being under judgment look like? Okay, so that's the stage for chapter 5. I figure, you know what, five minutes of, of review... Terrell does 25, so I'm doing pretty well, right? I'd, yeah, yeah. Tell, if, if Terrell asked, by the way, tell him I yelled at you, okay? That's, just make sure and tell he yelled at us really good, and then, then I'll have passed the Terrell test, right? Uh, okay, so on to uh, chapter 5, the first five verses. Let's read this together. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, okay, so what's the consequence of this justification is being made right. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So that's a good, good promise. Hopefully when you read that, you say, ah, that's, that's lovely. And I'd encourage you, when you read, when you read a passage, uh, if it's your first time, or even if it's your 20th time through, just to pause and say, wow, that is, that is really wonderful. I, I should thank the Lord just that it's simple, that he's made it simple. I'd also encourage you to sort of, to sort of dig in, and that's what I want to do together, to sort of say, what is, what is he promising us here? What is he offering us here? 
And so you look at, you look at that first piece. Um, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have, number one there is we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, then the second sort of promise there is we have grace that we can stand in. We have, we have this grace that we can really own and it can be ours. Then you see the next, the next big promise there is not only that, but we rejoice in our, oops, I missed, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we get to rejoice in this hope. And then the fourth one there, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So, four big promises there that I sort of see, and I want to just speak with you briefly about each of those. So the first one is we have peace with God. We've been invited into a place that is something that Israel never really experienced, but was the longing of Israel. You know, every good Jew, when they said hello, they would say shalom, right? Peace. When they say goodbye, they would say shalom. The goal of, of all of Israel is to experience the peace, the rightness that comes from being right with God. And so, this is the, this is the promise. What do you have to do? Nothing. Jesus has made the way. We've been justified, and so we have peace with God. The God of the universe, the righteous judge, considers you faultless. That's really, really good. You don't have to do anything. And so, if I could say anything, I think Paul would just say, sigh, breathe out. You don't have to work for this. Everything prior to this, every access to God was really hard, impossible really. We have peace with God. The second sort of promise that he puts in there is we have right standing before God. We have this grace. Uh, so two words that I think are overly churchy that we use too much, righteousness, right? Right relationship with God and grace. So grace is undeserved favor. You deserve something bad, you don't just not get the bad thing. That would be called mercy, by the way, right? If I deserved a kick in the pants and you didn't kick me in the pants, that would be merciful, right? Thank you. That's really nice. Grace is something more than that, though. Grace is you deserve something bad and you get something good. So I deserve a kick in the pants and you come and give me a hug. That's grace, right? So not only do you have peace with God, that's really good, right? I mean, you deserve judgment. I deserve judgment. We have peace with God, but we also have this undeserved favor, this undeserved invitation into this relationship with this holy God, this creator, this sustainer of all life. Okay, so we're, we're breathing in. We're not doing anything. We're just appreciating the generosity of God and what should that cause? That should cause rejoicing. And so you look at that next piece, and, and Paul really unpacks this in Romans 8. So he's, he's going to spend a lot of time camping out on these themes. But look at this. We have the ability to rejoice in the glory of God. God wins. The end of this story is every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, 
Lord, to the glory of God the Father. You can't screw this up. I wish that were true about classes, right? Um, <laughs> and, and being married. <laughs> uh, you can't screw it up. God wins. That's the end of the story. I don't care how bad you screw up ministry, how bad, you know, you doubt, all this stuff. God wins. And that is incredibly freeing. If you've ever been, you know, a small group leader, that, <laughs> that is something to remind yourself of when you're going in and you're like, oh, what if people like argue and never come back? And, you know, God wins. And so I think Paul is saying, can you just rejoice in the big picture? The big picture is you and I and all those who have accepted Christ's sacrifice are going to rejoice on that day that God has worked his plan, that we get to rejoice that Jesus went to prepare a place for us, an eternal place. You didn't do anything, I didn't do anything, it's just a good, good deal. Okay, but it doesn't stop there. He also says we rejoice even in our sufferings. We rejoice even in sufferings. God is going to use our struggles. This is not something you have to accomplish, right? If you look back at that passage, what does it say? It says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. It doesn't say Keith will produce endurance out of his sufferings, right? It just says suffering produces endurance. God uses all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. We have such peace. We have such freedom being unconditionally loved that we can even rejoice in the hard times. We can even rejoice knowing that suffering causes good things because God redeems it. God is not surprised by it. God is able to use it for good, good things. And I think it's interesting at the end there in, in verse 5 that Paul sort of ties it together. The, the mechanism for all four of those wonderful things I think is this. I think at the end you see the piece in red because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. What allows this to happen? It's love. It's God pouring his love. And it's interesting because, right, we started out with God the Father giving good gifts, us screwing up, God the Father saying, you deserve judgment. Then we get to the Son, and the Son's part of this. But this is the first time in Romans we've heard about the third part of the Trinity, right? What is, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is allowing you and allowing me to experience God's love allowing us to sit and bask, breathe in, breathe out, and enjoy this right standing with God, this righteousness that we didn't earn, that maybe we don't even fully understand, but we know God is good, and we know he's made a way. That's the beauty here. So, you know, you know and I could almost stop there, right? I mean, hey, um, I, I, could, I could, what? taunt Terrell um, that I finished in like one-third the time that he finished. Hey, we got through everything. Uh, but I just couldn't, I couldn't help but feeling like it was just a little bit trite. And, you know, I was, I was um, 
mulling it over, uh, trying to think about, okay, so, so what's, where do we go from here? And, and my wife said, said these words, actually. So why is it so hard? I mean, if, if you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, you've probably, you've probably had moments where you experienced his peace, where you, you felt like, oh, yeah, I have grace, where it's easy to be joyful. But, but a lot of times it's hard to be joyful. And I, I think that, to me, is, is the challenge. Okay, what happens if, yeah, I know I should, I should be, feel the peace of God. I know I should be rejoicing that God wins at the end. I know I should be rejoicing in suffering, but it's hard. It's hard. And I'd say, I'd say this. Those four things that we talked about are true, but sometimes we have to fight for them. Sometimes you have to fight to believe what is true. Uh, I think it's interesting, sort of, the way that the Bible talks about rejoicing and thankfulness as somehow a protection for us. Somehow a way, when you are struggling, the Bible exhorts us to give thanks in all situations. Paul in Philippians, in Philippians 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord, I'll say it again, rejoice. In, in Philippians 3, he says this, he says, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again. And it's a safeguard for you. Did you hear that? Rejoicing is a safeguard for your mind. When you are struggling, rejoicing, giving thanks. Isn't it interesting? It's re-joy, right? Rejoice, right? So hopefully when, when you discovered, probably most of you have heard that uh, God offers us unconditional love. He offers us redemption in his son. First time you heard that, hopefully you had joy. Ever after that, you have to have re-joy, right? Rejoicing. Uh, that's a choice. That's a choice. And uh, you might notice in, in pretty much every translation, if you, if you go to the footnotes, right, it says uh, we have peace, but then in the footnote it says some manuscripts say, let us have peace. And then you look to the next footnote in most manuscripts, and it says, we rejoice. But then some manuscripts say, let us rejoice. And I think both of those are true. We do have peace. We do have joy. But it's equally true that we, we, need, to, we need to do something here. We need to choose to rejoice. We need to choose to enter in to that. And I want to talk a little bit about the two sides to that, sort of the spiritual side of that, and then I think this is a beautiful place where the spiritual side and the physiological side really, really fit together and just really complement each other well. So let's, let's look at sort of the spiritual side. The spiritual justification here is the Bible is very clear. There are two kingdoms in conflict, right? And they're conf in conflict in your life. Paul writes in another place, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood. You're not struggling against your roommate. The offense you're feeling there is against spiritual forces that are opposed to the spiritual forces that are constantly refocusing you on God. Okay? There is a battle, and the battlefield is your mind. You know, will you abide in peace? Will you rejoice in the grace in which you now stand? 
Uh, it's interesting what, uh, what Paul writes in Corinthians because uh, he, he's writing about these themes and he comes back to the same themes. Why? Because it's hard. Because it's hard. He's, he writes in 2 Corinthians 10, we demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, Paul is concerned about your mind, he is concerned about your thoughts, and thoughts that aren't obedient to Christ, Paul says we need to take captive. There's a spiritual reality here that, that you are fighting for your mind, and it's a battle. But the beauty of this is uh, there's also a neurological justification. So I see no dichotomy at all between the spiritual reality and the reality that is uh, neuroscience. So uh, a neurologist would tell you now that what you think of as a thought in your mind is actually uh, a pulse of electricity through neurons. So up in your noggin, you have about 100 billion neurons, right? Oh, the joys. This is the only technical slide. So Sarah and all those other biologists, don't, don't get too queasy because I won't, I won't test you later on where, where the dendrites are. Uh, <laughs> but here's the point. Your brain has 100 billion of these. The, the direction of those arrows, when you have a thought, what happens is the right side of that, is that right? I guess it's your right. The axon connects to other left sides, and it forms a chain, okay? Every thought you have is an electric pulse through neurons. And you know what neuroscience tells us? Every time you repeat that thought, those dendrites, that axon, thickens. That gets thicker. The more different ways you think a thought, the more paths take you to that thought. You want to think something? Practice thinking about it. Yeah? You want to think something? Practice thinking about it. You want to practice rejoicing? You're going to be really good at rejoicing. You want to be good at worrying? Practice. <laughs> It's great. Your brain, I mean, you are physically rewiring yourself when you worry. Good news. You're going to be really good at it. It's just like weightlifting, right? I mean, how do you tell your muscle? You know, I keep telling my biceps, I'd really like my bicep to be huge like Marshall's. Um, <laughs> it hasn't worked yet. Well, there's a way you tell your bicep to be large. What is it? You lift heavy stuff. Your bicep figures it out, right? Steroids help, but, you know, that's a story for another day. Uh, there's a way you tell your mind, I want you to be good at worrying. You practice. Your mind gets really good at it. There's a way you tell your mind, I want to be good at relating to the Lord. You practice. And what happens here is those neurons actually thicken. Have you struggled to pray? Would you like to be better at prayer? Neurologically, I can tell you the answer. Practice. Practice speaking to the Lord, and your brain will actually grow physically better at practicing. It's a beautiful reality. Isn't it beautiful that the Lord not only made our brains to agree with what he wrote 2,000 years earlier, but now he's giving us a picture of how physically true this is, that you need to guard your mind. You need to guard what you're thinking about because your mind will get really good at thinking about what you practice thinking about.
Okay, so we've got sort of that neurological justification, the spiritual justification. And now, I just want to come back to, right, we've gotten through the first five verses. Paul sort of walks us through what that looks like. And you could unpack this a dozen different ways. But let's pick up in verse 6. And, and just try to enjoy this. Just try to rest. What does it look like to just re- enjoy peace in the Lord, rejoicing in the glory of God, right relationship? This is what it looks like. Paul's just saying, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's already said that, right? He's not telling you new information. He's just wanting you to come back to it. He's wanting to expand those neurons, right? Fire the electricity again. He's wanting you to abide in that truth. He's wanting you to think about it, to reflect on it. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I think this is a picture of sort of what Christian meditation looks like. Okay? Now, there's, there's something called Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is this. You try to empty your mind to calm it down. Christian meditation says you focus on something different. So let's practice. Maybe, maybe there's some validity here. Uh, I'm hoping you're a little hungry. You haven't eaten yet. So wouldn't a hamburger taste good now? Ooh, a charbroiled. Ooh, I, I love it with cheese, like just a little melty on the top. Now, don't think about that. Don't think about the cheese. Mmm, mmm, and a little sauce. Don't think, no, don't think about anything. Don't think about it. Don't, especially don't think about the cheeseburger. Ooh, mmm, I'm not thinking about it. You aren't either, right? <laughs> that, you know, and, and maybe, you know, I mean, maybe there's some validity to just not thinking about it. That's not what Christian meditation is about. Christian meditation is this. It's saying, don't think about this. Think about something better. That's what Paul means when he says, finally, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, if anything is excellent or admirable, think about these things. What's he asking us to do? He's asking us to meditate on that which is good, and God is good. Can you see that's what he's doing here? He's sort of giving you a picture of what that looks like. This is almost something you might be able to do with the passage before that. You could say, man, Jesus died for us. I don't know, maybe my mom. (laughs) I don't know anybody who'd die for me. Um, Maybe for a really good person. But what if somebody, like, knew all the jerky things I ever did? Even, like, when I was a freshman in college and lied to that girl about, you know. That, you know, that's Christian meditation. And saying, God, God is really, really good. Wow. Jesus dying for me, that was really, really generous. So I think I, I just hold this up, and I'd, I'd encourage you to use Scripture that way to just meditate, to allow it to draw you back to the goodness of God. You can get a lot of technical points out here. I think it's more important that you abide, that you think again and again about the goodness of God, about the peace that you have, about the grace, the undeserved favor that he's given you.
and that you rejoice. I'd say for me, there's, a, there's another piece to rejoicing. There's something else that really helps me to rejoice. Um, and it's this. Beautiful things. This is Lake Knack. Yeah, it's free, 20 minutes from town. This is sunrise at Lake Knack. Um, happens every day, <laughs> if you're up early enough. This is, uh, sunrise is best on the, on the west shore, and then sunset on the east shore is really beautiful. And I'd, I'd encourage you just to take time. God, God has put beautiful things in your life. Sun, sunrise even happens on SFA's campus, I hear, if you get up early enough, but it's just, just speculation. But sunset, we'll all be up for that, right? Uh, but it doesn't have to be that. Remember the beautiful things and allow the beautiful things to point you back to a good, good father, back to a good, good creator. I think, honestly, the biggest thing that inhibits me walking in the peace of God, the grace of God, rejoicing in God is just my need to make room. I need to make room, and I suspect many of you need to make room for the things that I know are true. So I'd say this to you. You need to make room. You need to make room for peace in your life. You need to make room to be still and know that he is God, that he will be exalted. You need to make room for right relationship with the Lord. It's hard to have a relationship in a rush. And your boyfriend and girlfriend, they're going to tell you, maybe with a kick in the pants, you know, you need to spend more time with me. Sometimes the Lord kicks you in the pants, and sometimes he just sort of helps you to spend more time with him. You need to make room for rejoicing. Isn't it ironic that we could we could have so many good things. You could have friends. You could have all-you-can-eat food. You could have a healthy body, so healthy that, you know, you could go play ultimate with your friends. All of these incredible blessings from the Lord and that they could get so, you could just be so clogged with blessings that you could forget to turn and give thanks to the one who gave you all those blessings. I really think we need to make room. I need to make room. You need to make room. And the last one on this list, I really think my main trouble in enjoying God's word is making room for it. Okay? Now, it helps to sort of set aside a time and say, I'm going to read this chapter or these verses. But I'm talking about more than that. I'm talking about time to really chew on it. When I was in college, I, I had this thing happen where I'd go and somebody else would preach about the word and it would be just, it would be so wonderful, but I'd read it and it was a lot sort of drier when I did it by myself. And I think what's really happening is when, when Terrell speaks or when Joe speaks or, you know, when, when I'm speaking, uh, they've spent tons of time just pouring over the, the word asking the Lord to, to teach them through it. And so you're really benefiting when Terrell speaks from tons of time that he has spent making room for the word to speak. And if you don't experience that yourself, I challenge you, make room for it. Make room for it. Make room for the word to speak to you. Okay, so that's 
that's sort of my pitch, make room. I want to come back just to that last piece because I think, again, it's just that refrain. It's coming back. Come back to rejoicing. Come back to peace. Come back to that grace. So here's, here's the end of the passage we're going to look at. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So you were made right by Jesus' blood. How much more by his life are you going to be made right? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice. There's that rejoicing again. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul's not telling you anything new here. If you read the first four chapters and change before this, you would get every single point here. He's just bringing you back. He's wanting you to marinate on the goodness of God. Marinate on the fact that you weren't just justified. Justified means, right, forgiven, made right, not made guilty. You were also reconciled, right? Reconciliation is invited into that right relationship, into that rightness with God. Isn't it beautiful? So breathe deeply. Rejoice. Rest. Enjoy the peace of God that's been offered you freely. Now, I, probably for half of you, I could stop it right there, but I just want to say one last piece. Um, some people will be really tempted to take that and be frustrated with themselves. God, you know, I mean, why is it? I, you know, I, I should be more peaceful. Um, God, why don't I rejoice? You know, am I even saved? You know, do, uh, <laughs> this is really frustrating. You know, I should be peaceful. I should be happy. I should be rejoicing. And I just, I just say this. You can't screw this up. Remember my daughter? Let's say my daughter does something wrong. Does she stop belonging to me? Let's say, let's say she's even defiant. Is she going to stop being my daughter? Are you kidding me? You know, what's she going to do that I'm going to say, no, I don't want her anymore? No possible way. Your father loves you. Your father accepts you. Let's say you worry every day for the next week. Now, your father's not going to be thrilled about it, but don't think for one minute you're not his kid. Don't think for one minute you don't belong because you struggle. He loves you. He loves you as a child. That'll be a theme that Paul comes back to. He accepts you. And you can abide in that whether you're successful or not. Remember that you belong unconditionally to the good, good Father.